Welcome to the Culture of Things podcast with Brendan Rogers. This is a podcast where we talk all things culture, leadership and teamwork across business and sport. To all our loyal listeners, the Culture of Things podcast will now have specific episodes produced for YouTube. To ensure you don't miss out on this exclusive YouTube content, head over to YouTube, click on the subscribe button, and hit the notification bell. Now, let's get into the episode. Hello and welcome to the Culture of Things podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rogers, and this is episode 54. And today I'm talking with a good friend of mine, David Bacon. Now, I'm just going to read a little bit of his bio to give some background on David. David's an experienced director, chief executive, and senior executive in both the private and public sectors, covering media, regional economic development, community housing, and the fast-moving consumer goods sectors. After an active broadcasting and journalism career in Australia, David spent almost a decade in London working in the fast-moving consumer goods industry as a communications specialist and chief global spokesman. In 1999, he returned to Australia to become chief executive of the Federation of Australian Radio Broadcasters, which is now Commercial Radio Australia, and was later general manager of Radio 2UE in Sydney before becoming director of corporate affairs at Southern Cross Broadcasting's Melbourne head office. David is experienced in governance, particularly in the radio broadcasting sector, having guided the commercial radio industry through its response to the cash for comment scandal. He's led major global communication campaigns, participated in international business development, and overseen the management of crises and sensitive issues in Australia and many international markets. David's also spent time as a career counsellor and is a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. David. Welcome to the Culture of Things podcast. He sounds interesting, that guy. I'd like to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's hope so. I, I, as far as I know, we didn't have to make any of that stuff up, did we? No, in fact, uh, I haven't manufactured my uh, CV. Uh, yeah, I'd forgotten some of that, but yeah, that's me. <laughs> it is certainly possible to manufacture stuff today. We can just write anything on social media and there's an element of people that will believe it, right? Yeah, we're going to tell the truth. <laughs> Fantastic, mate. We love the truth here on the Culture of Things podcast. Now... A couple of things I want to just get into straight away. One of them is this cash for comment scandal. That was about 20 years or so ago. Really interesting. We all love a bit of saga, right? I just want to understand, give us a bit of background on what that was about and what was your role in that? It was probably after in the United States, they had a great scandal many, many years ago where disc jockeys were taking money to play records to promote them. That was called the back great payola scandal. And then, so this really was Australia's own payola scandal in some respects. And uh, it came about because of a culture within the broadcasting industry. But basically what was happening was individuals were taking payments from interested parties to promote certain views on the air. That's what it boiled down to. So the main players were uh, two of the biggest names in commercial radio, John Laws and Alan Jones. So that's really what it was about. They were basically selling time themselves on the radio stations and they were taking the money for it rather than the radio stations getting it. But that wasn't the point. I mean, things like this had gone on in the radio industry forever. When I worked in the country, some of my colleagues in small country towns, in small country radio stations would go down to the local butcher once a week and pick up a tray of meat. And on the breakfast program that week, uh, the butcher would be 
said hello in the breakfast program and a bit of a plug, and it just meant a bit of a plug. And it was basically the same thing was happening, but this was happening really on an industrial scale because it was important issues. And this is where I suppose the regulators and the politicians got involved and became concerned. They weren't interested if somebody got a tray of meat or even, you know, a case of wine or something. But when important issues were being influenced, such as the banking industry and things like that, that's when the regulators decided to become interested. So that's really what it was about. It sounds a bit like an old-fashioned affiliate marketing scheme, taking money for promoting products. And in fact, you're absolutely right. It was probably the, the forerunner to it. What was missing was that there was no declaration that there was a consideration being paid for these views to be expressed. That's the difference today in honest affiliate marketers. Uh, they will always acknowledge that they're taking something to promote these products. But on this occasion, they weren't doing that. They were just expressing it as a view. And I suppose using the credibility which they had established as commentators. And so there were big hearings and uh, it, was, it was quite a scandal. My role in that, I came in, I suppose, towards the end of it, the hearings were being held. And my role was in the negotiation with government in the development of rules and regulations, which were going to deal with that in the future, because I was running the industry association that affected the industry. So my role was to negotiate with government and, and get in place an acceptable regime, which was going to enable broadcasting to continue. You couldn't have people monitoring everything every day of the week from government sitting in your studios. But, you know, we came from that point to uh, what amounted to, there had to be a declaration if they were going to mention something for which they were receiving a consideration. So how is that, I guess your involvement in that and the liaisons with government agencies and things like that, how has that impacted the uh, radio stations and these sort of situations now or in the, in the future then and, and up, up to now? Well, uh, I've been out of it for 20 years now, <laughs> so I'm not sure how they're ticking over. Um, these things are in place and I think they've managed to work within the rules and I suspect that there probably isn't as much of that about. People are far more aware now, I think. Keep in mind that back then you didn't have social media, so you didn't have people being able to uh, put something out, almost like we're doing today. You can reach a lot of people without having the expensive infrastructure of a broadcasting organisation. So these rules are in place. You, you get the hang of working within a regulatory environment, but it is a very highly regulated environment. Now, one of the other things I want to raise today is it's really important in an interview that myself as host makes the guests feel comfortable. I also think it's important for the guest to make the host feel comfortable. I know you're a Chelsea supporter. I am. I've got something here for you, and it would actually help me feel a lot more comfortable if you were to wear this during the interview today. It's a Liverpool scarf. I've always loved seeing Chelsea supporters wear the red of Liverpool. So if you'd just like to don that, that would be absolutely fantastic. And I'll tell you what I'll do with this. I'll just uh, give it a little bit of a tweak here because I'm also a Dragons supporter and this is red and white. <laughs> so you've shot yourself in the so foot. So red and white go, is not... Go Dragons. 
Red and white is familiar to you. Very familiar. Now, please, I'm, they break I'm our hearts always every week. In, I'm all they do. I'm always interested in understanding why people follow a certain football team. Let, let's talk Chelsea. Why would you follow a team like that? Oh, I used to live next door to a bloke who played for them when I lived in England. And it was simple as that. I'm fickle. I'm pretty easy, you know. So, uh, yeah, we lived uh, when I was living at the time in Windsor in the UK. Nigel Spackman, who uh, played for Chelsea at the time, had played for Rangers. And um, he was my next door neighbour. Our kids played together. We got to know them quite well. And so I supported Chelsea. It's as simple as that. If you're that fickle, I reckon I'll have you supporting Liverpool by the end of this no, interview. Is that right? No, no. I'm also a snob. <laughs> <laughs> is that what Chelsea supporters are, is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> oh, well, let's talk about your involvement in Rotary. Rotary is an international organisation. For those of people that don't know, just tell a little bit of background around Rotary. Rotary International, what they're about, and you've been the president of one of the Rotary Clubs on the Central Coast for the last 12 months. Still are, changeover happening soon. Tell us a bit about Rotary and your involvement as president of your club. Rotary is an interesting story. Back in 1905, a young lawyer called Paul Harris went to Chicago to open a small law firm, and so he had an office in a building, and uh, he was quite lonely. So he uh, he got to know some of the other guys in his building and suggested that once a week they have lunch together. So they started to do this and they decided that each week they would rotate to each guy's office to have the lunch. And so they were rotating and Rotary was born. So uh, they then drew in a few of their other uh, friends and associates and then they decided that as well as enjoying the fellowship, keep in mind one of the great objects of Rotary is fellowship, the the value of that. And um, they decided they should do some good works. And their first project ever, they built a public toilet in Chicago. And from that, uh, Rotary has grown to this great international organisation. I should have come armed with the statistics, which I'm supposed to be able to roll off my tongue. I think there's something- We like, can put them in the show notes. Yes, show notes. 33,000 clubs around the world, I think, wow. you know, millions of members. We're just about on every continent, I think. So Rotary, um, one of the great things is the attraction for me to Rotary is A, it's internationalism. And secondly, so it, it does good works. You can, from Australia, do good works internationally or facilitate them or foster them. So that's the, that's one thing. The second thing is that Rotary fosters peace and goodwill around the world. And, and that's not, I think, a well understood point about Rotary. Rotary was involved in advisory committees in the establishment of the United Nations. It's the only organization of its type which has a seat on a committee at the UN today. So Rotary is somewhat influential. And it's considered, it's a very credible organisation. One of uh, the great achievements of Rotary is it has almost um, facilitated the eradication of polio around the world through its vaccination programs. Rotarians go to developing nations and uh, Rotarians in those developing nations as well actually go out and vaccinate kids. So the number of polio cases each year now sometimes is only five or six. 
And the places that they can't get to are usually around in the northern parts of Pakistan and Afghanistan because the Taliban won't let them in. And that is the only place they can't get to. And uh, one of the great achievements in the past few years is a collaboration with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who have committed huge amounts of money. And they're pretty smart. They say, we'll give you a couple of hundred million if you match it with a hundred million. So Rotarians around the world... So we don't all just go out and vaccinate kids. You help to fund, raise funds. And we do that through the Rotary Foundation. So that's part of it. And Rotary also runs a lot of uh, youth and international exchange programs. And that is how they foster this international understanding. And the philosophy being that if you send kids, say, 16, 17, 18, to another country to live with another family for a year, a Rotary family, they will get to know them. They will be part of that family for a year. And then when they go back home, these kids who get selected to do that are usually young leaders anyway. You've got to be pretty good to be selected to go. And the philosophy is that they're likely to grow up and be the leaders of their countries in the future. 20 years down the track, you may be able to make a phone call that just helps solve a problem internationally. So that's um, that's Rotary International. It does lots of other great things as well uh, in local communities. In Australia, we have just celebrated 100 years of Rotary. And on the Central Coast, where we're based, I know people are watching us everywhere, <laughs> uh, on the Central Coast where we're based, Rotary was first formed, I wrote a history of Rotary just recently, I'm trying to remember, 1947, I think it was, the Rotary Club of Gosford was formed. And out of that, the 15 clubs on the coast were born, all except two, they were formed separately in later years. So we've been here quite a while. Rotary locally has done some fantastic things. The Rotary Club of Gosford in the early days was responsible for the construction of first aid stations and a hospital on the Kokoda Track for two reasons, people were going there, but also to the people of PNG had assisted Australians so much during the Second World War, we should have, you know, we needed to do something later on to help these people. And the Rotary Club of Gosford was responsible for that. So yeah, there's been some great initiatives. The club that I'm involved in, we assisted in the raising of funds, which have ultimately resulted in the establishment of speech therapy in Vietnam. Rotary, along with a number of other international charity organisations, go to developing nations and perform surgery. They do eye surgery. And there's a group that goes and does cleft palates. And a lady and her husband went there. He was an orthodontist. She's a speech therapist. And they went as part of a team on cleft palates in Vietnam. And they realised that the good work was being done, the surgery was conducted, but then the teams packed up and went home. Now. I'm not a medical person, but anybody who knows anything about these things knows that there is then months of therapy to get people back to normal, to be able to swallow, to be able to speak. So this woman said, we've got to try and do something about that. So she came back, she assembled her friends who were speech therapists, and she said, we need some money to raise some funds to be able to get people trained in Vietnam. And they'd made connections in universities there. But it was all of the literature and the and the manuals and things for the training. Anyway, um, over a period of five years, my Rotary Club raised some money, assisted in all of that. And today, speech therapists are being trained in Vietnam. Well, wow, it's fantastic. The Rotary is a very, very strong organisation and the work they do. And I can see the emotion in your face, just how proud you are of that achievement. Well done. 
Yeah, it's good. What makes it so special for you? I don't know. I've had a very fortunate career. I got to see the world. And uh, when I came back here, I thought, well, I'll give something back. And uh, so uh, that's what I thought I'd do. Use, use what corporate life had given me to give something to my community. Well done, mate. Outstanding. How does all of those things you spoke about with Rotary, and, and obviously you are unbelievably passionate about it, how do they transpose into your role in this last 12 months as president on the ground? What sort of responsibilities do you need to take on as a local president or as a president of a local rot- Rotary club? Rotary is a very interesting organisation on the ground because keep in mind we're volunteers and this uh, introduces a whole lot of different issues. And I think, uh, fortunately, because of where I've come from, if you like, and I'm uh, older and wiser, you've learnt to get on with people better. I used to be a command and control guy, I have to tell you. I could really? See- I, I never saw that in you. <laughs> <laughs> I used to see what needed to be done. I used to say, get on with it. We don't need to consult on this. Let's get on with it. And, of course, the world ain't like that. You need to, uh, you need to take people along with you. So you really need to be able to, I think, articulate to people where you want to go. So this year in my presidency, we introduced a new five-year strategic plan. We are a small organisation with about 30 members, but just because you're small doesn't mean that you shouldn't have good planning, good systems, good governance. And so we introduced a five-year strategic plan. And I can tell you, it's no more than, I think it's three sheets of paper, but all it does is it articulates your values and the goals that you want to achieve over the next five years. So it isn't rocket science. It's very simple things like we would like to increase the amount of funds that we raise each year. We would like to, um, well, I've got a bit of a personal story. We would like to do something in relation to men's health. I'm a prostate cancer survivor. And so, you know, you bring your own agenda a little bit to these organisations as well. So you set some goals like that. And then for my year, I did a business plan. And I was very lucky because of the corporate training I've had going to the UK, working for a fast move, one of the major multinational. Mm. The training was fantastic. And so I know how to write a business plan. And as the president, that you've got to do that yourself because you're surrounded by people with all sorts of different skills, great skills, but they might be different from yours, and you've got to recognise that. So it's not too difficult. And then, of course, you present it to them and discuss it with them. It's not my plan. It's the club's plan. And so they have to sign up to that as well. But usually I've also learnt through corporate life and through most things that I do that you develop things in a way that you give people a chance to say yes. There's no good going along. I've learnt this, that you don't go along to say, we've got a problem. What do you think we should do? You go along to say to somebody and say, we've got a problem and I think we should do this. And I've found that 99 times out of 100, everybody's going to say, yeah. So that's my experience. So yes, it, you have to be clear. You have to take them with you. And generally, if it's looking okay, then they will come with you. And we, we had another thing too where I challenged my colleagues. I said, I want to do something in this area, but I don't know how to do it. But you, I know you guys want to do it. And I challenged them and um, they rose to the occasion. So, because, uh, you know, you're surrounded by good people. They're, 
everybody there. They, you know, you volunteer to go to Rotary, so they're all good people. And uh, sometimes they just need a little, a little uh, nudging, a bit like water. You know, it's going, it's all going downhill, but just nudge it along a bit to the side. Tell me a little bit about the formulation of the plan. You mentioned how you, you know, had some some ideas and some visions and put this down on paper and and then presented to the group. How, how did tell us more about how you got the buy in from your fellow Rotarians? I suppose it's just explaining it to them, and a lot of it is reasonably obvious as well. So. I didn't suggest that we suddenly go and build a rocket or something. I was suggesting- No Elon Musk here? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, and, and Elon and me, no. Um, it was pick things really which are obvious. Most things that we need to do, I think, are largely common sense are obvious. Yes, you get the great innovators and things have a great idea. Somebody once said, though, there are no such things as new ideas. There are just old ones waiting to be rediscovered. And if you think about that, it's probably pretty true. But a lot of what we do in the community as Rotarians and things are reasonably obvious. And we also have the availability of Rotary International and uh, they set goals and, you know, it's a it's a pretty SMIC organisation. It's got a fantastic website and database where you can take ideas and things. There's great communication around. You can see what other clubs are doing so that... Um, you know, you can you can nick ideas. <laughs> but you can see what other clubs are doing which are successful. You also listen to your members. You know, I'd like to do something like this. So, yes, it doesn't all have to be you. So it's the obvious things like we need to raise some more money. So that's a goal. Let's 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 aim at something reasonable. If we can raise five percent more each year, that will be a good thing. And we did. We had a good year this year. I knew some guys were interested in doing something and I said, why don't you do that? This was a car rally and you've got some guys who are enthusiasts. So I went along to that. It was a fantastic you were day. Involved. It was a good day, wasn't it? Absolutely. It turned out to be, and it was COVID safe at the time because people were in their cars, so we could still run it. It was the beginning of COVID, but because of the nature of it, we could still do it, which was brilliant. One of my colleagues is well-connected to car clubs and he's very enthusiastic and he got them involved. So we had a lot more people involved. We raised a lot more money than we'd hoped. Mm. So it's listening to what your guys want to do as well. You know, you start off by saying, has anybody got any ideas? What do you want to do? So you incorporate those things into it as well. There are some things you want to achieve yourself. Every president, I think, likes to make their own mark and leave their legacy. And so there are things that you want to achieve. And if they're reasonable, your colleagues will support you, I think. So what was your legacy that you hoped to leave after your 12 months as Rotary president? I feared you might ask me that. <laughs> the next question is, have you achieved it? <laughs> we didn't achieve every goal that I put into the business plan. We ran out of a bit of time. I think we're better organised. I hope we're better organised in the sense that we've got a plan. It's a five-year plan. And I know the president who's coming in behind me is a supporter and he will then build into his business plan, just extending some of those things, plus a couple of new things. You, you really want to continue the things which are, do, are going well. So we did the, the rally before, we're going to do it again. And then you hope they will introduce a couple of things which are special to them. So I suspect we are probably better organised. It doesn't seem like a great legacy, does it? It's foundations for the future. It's a foundation for the future. Leaving it better than you found it. Yeah, yeah. 
And that should be no criticism of those who went before me because the president before me copped the worst of COVID. But I pay tribute to her because she kept us going every week through a Zoom meeting. Never relented, but we got together every week on Zoom. She kept it going. So there was something there then for me to get going when we could meet again after COVID. And that's no mean feat. So absolutely well done to Francine on that. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. One of the things that I also, I'm not a Rotarian, I, I've been close to time, time, it's, I know it's, you know, fitting everything in is tough, but one of the things that I really love, there's many things, but one of the cool things about Rotary was, I can't remember the term you used, but when you, you were elected as president almost 12 months ago, the next president is also elected, that president-elect or- President-elect, yes. Yeah. So there's some succession planning in that process. What's your involvement as that elected president and working with the president-elect over this 12 months so that there is some continuity? Yeah. So firstly, the president is normally pretty involved in selecting the president-elect. Look, voluntary organisations these days struggle to get office bearers. And I know there are some Rotary clubs where presidents are now doing two terms. It's traditional that they do one and that you keep this going. And then so you get that renewal every year. And I think that's a good philosophy. But I know there are many clubs now who are doing two terms. We are fortunate where we've got um, we've got a slightly younger profile as well in our club. I'm myself excluded. Uh, <laughs> so I sort of identified somebody who I thought make a good president and uh, basically uh, encouraged him to consider it early on. When I was president-elect, I was thinking about succession. And you get these things because of your corporate life. And so I was thinking about, well, who was going to follow me? So I encouraged this guy and sort of involved him as I went along so that his, he was building his knowledge about Rotary. And so he was, he was then keen to do it and he'll make a really good president. And so you involve him, or I certainly have involved him as I've gone along to make sure he knew what I was doing and why I was doing it and uh, so that he could basically be able to hit the ground running when he starts. And of course, you remain on the board as the immediate past president. So you don't have a specific vocational role or anything there, but you remain there. And effectively, I guess you are the new president's mentor as well. Or you you can be when it's uh, somebody like me who's been around for so long, I suppose, in Rotary that... um, I've done lots of things. You're like rusted on the wall, aren't you? Yeah, I'm Yeah, I'm like a bit of old cheese. I think mouldy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, mate. I've known, only known you about two and a half years and I, I think you move along with society pretty well and you, you do your best to keep up with things and, and modernise our ideas and thoughts and stuff. It's all really important in leadership, isn't it? I think that's one of the things that I learnt in corporate life was, as I said to you before, I was a bit of a command and control Matt guy. I had pretty fixed ideas and then I got into corporate life and the corporation I was working for was a fantastic place and it opened my mind and I learnt to uh, be far more considerate of other people's views. I was very lucky. The corporate training was fantastic. I've got a, I've got a CV with corporate training which would be equivalent to an MBA, the, the things that I was sent on and with the people, keep in mind you're at an international level, you're in London doing this. So you're picking. We had guys from the University of Michigan Business School come to London to train us. It was fantastic. But we went on this thing called a high performance leadership program with 
I think there was about 14 of my colleagues, we were all about at the same level in the company. And it was one of those things that you see on reality television where they would follow it today. And you sit around in circles and you tell each other what you really think of them. That was a hell of a moment, I can tell you. But you can go into it with the right attitude or you can take offence. I fortunately had the right attitude and I thought, oh, I didn't know that. So I got to know myself a hell of a lot better. Hopefully it made me a better person, but I think it made me better in the leadership role because that's what it was designed to do. And that was, and as I said to you there earlier, how did I approach the plan? Well, I listened to my colleagues. What did they want to do? And could we incorporate that into a plan that was going to make the club successful? So that listening and being open to ideas potentially from others was sounds like part of the feedback you received. What did you do to change to put yourself more in that frame of mind to actually action on that feedback? I guess I don't know. I think it was, um, I know now, further on down the track, I'm conscious. I became very conscious. It's one of the things that even we talk about at Toastmasters about active listening. I learnt to be an active listener. Now, my my, my wife may tell you that uh, it's not quite the same all the time. But... Sam, if you're watching, hello. <laughs> <laughs> but I learned to be an active listener, and that, I think, was uh, far more important. I worked as a journalist and doing interviews with people, and I wasn't an active listener. I had no idea. I learned more about being a broadcaster when I left the industry and went into corporate life and joined Toastmasters, believe it or not. I did a Toastmasters program in, I think it was about 1986, a speechcraft program. Again, it was part of my corporate training. The corporations paid for it. They sent me for 10 weeks. And I probably learnt more in 10 weeks with Toastmasters than I did in 15 years in broadcasting. Now, commercial radio is much better at training people now. But back then, it was uh, when I worked through commercial radio for 15 years in my early days, you sort of had to figure it out yourself. Yes. Toastmasters is a fantastic organisation, like Rotary. We're not going to go into Toastmasters. We talked about Toastmasters with our current Toastmasters president, Kate Purcell, way back on a previous episode. So, But fantastic organisation as well. Uh, really helps us gain this confidence in public speaking, doesn't it? Well, it's confidence in a lot of things. And, uh, and as you will have co- covered with Kate, what a great training organisation it is. But um, Rotary is not dissimilar in the sense that, and there's this great collaboration now between Rotary and Toastmasters, which is a great partnership, because it brings online training. Rotary already had very good online training programs, but it's now better. So again, in voluntary organisations, I don't know how you encourage people to do it. Certainly, presidents have training coming into Rotary. So we have a big training program to get them up to speed and it's very good. And they are now encouraged to do these online programs through the Rotary International website, which have been developed by Toastmasters. So, you know, even the not-for-profits and the charities are recognising the need to train their leaders. And I think that's a, that's a really big issue in the, uh, the not-for-profit sector and in the voluntary sector is training people. People come to the, to the voluntary sector with wonderful attitudes. They want to do good. They have a passion to do good things and they can do good things. You need that passion to drive organisations but often they don't have a skill set 
to be able to make it happen effectively or on scale or to deliver things. It's great having great ideas and I want to save the world, but I'm not quite sure what those things that you do. You asked me about the specifics about things and it's sort of figuring out what specific things we need to do to get us to that point. Our interview will continue after this. An expression of gratitude or reciprocity, no matter how large or small, is an important part of a healthy culture and relationships. Our friends at Jangler have a great app that allows you to send a gift card with either a personal video, voice message, or funny gif. You can send it right away or schedule to send on the perfect day and time. So it can be something you set and forget. It's perfect for clients, employees, birthdays, and any celebration where you can't be there in person. It's quick, easy to send, and you can spend instantly in-store or online when you receive a card. Check it out at www.jangler.com.au. That's www.jangler.com.au. You've mentioned skill sets and just want to go back to something earlier you said about your involvement in the president election. What sort of skill sets, attributes, behaviours were you looking for as a most important in the person that you felt would be the next best president of Rotary? I may not want to answer this <laughs> because sometimes- is that, is that pleading the fifth? Is that, is that what they say? I well, yeah, I, I'm thinking of pleading the fifth. I'm looking for someone, this might seem a bit glib, someone who can do the job, someone who's smart enough to do the job and someone who's got, I was looking for somebody with experience in business. I think uh, that for me, I've recognised, you know, there are people not in business who come from the not-for-profit sector and that, who are also great CEOs and able people. But I was looking, I was looking for somebody who was younger than me we need to be looking to encourage youth. And so I was looking for somebody younger than me, somebody who was experienced in business, somebody who was a professional as well. This guy's an architect. And it was different from me, completely different from me as well. And I think you also need that diversity amongst the people. So when do you hand over the baton? 30th of June. Something else I should have said too, HR people used to hate me in corporate life. Because uh, only HR people? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's right. <laughs> because when I was hiring people, I could tell you within about 30 seconds when they walked into the room whether I was going to hire them or not. And I'm a great believer in personal chemistry. So can I get on with somebody? Because that has a huge influence, I think, on the way you will manage them. And so if you like them and you have chemistry, you will get the best performance out of them. And so you might not recruit the person with the highest qualifications, but you will recruit somebody with enough qualifications, but somebody who you know you can get on with and you will bring out the best of them. And I, I learned that from one of my staff who told me that about me. Sometimes people tell you some stuff and I suddenly, the light came on. I thought, oh yeah, because I like you. And I've known people that I perhaps have inherited who I didn't hire and I didn't have great chemistry with them, and the outcomes weren't as good as they possibly could be. So I was also looking for somebody with whom I had chemistry who I could continue to work with, and I do. It's, yeah, it's going to be good, I think. 
So tell us a little bit more, how do you feel you suss that out, for want of a better word, with people? I don't know. I suppose it's, do you talk to them very often? Do you talk to them about stuff? Do you talk to them about other things apart from Rotary? Do you have any other things in common? So you're just getting to know them as a person? Yeah. You've got to get to know them. You know, we we have an interest in music. He's a far more talented than I am. He can actually play the guitar properly. Um, <laughs> I just happen to have a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> this is enough. In fact, this is going to have to bite the dust soon. Believe it or not, I was having this conversation with Do you know my- how comfortable you're making me feel? <laughs> My wife and I were speaking this week and I said, it's amazing how much warmer you feel when you've got a nice scarf on. Mm. And that so, is a top quality scarf, I have, to, is a top a scarf quality, I have to say. It's the finest polyester uh, money can that, make. Excuse me, excuse me. I'm feeling really uncomfortable. <laughs> the Liverpool scarf never goes on the floor. Can you please place it on the I table? I have to place it on the table. <laughs> it's, it's like a flag. But believe it or not, <laughs> believe it or not, it's warm. <laughs> Still, you need that. You're overheating now, mate. Oh. You've taken it off. You need that at Anfield, isn't it? Is it Anfield? It's pretty cold. Yeah. It's a pretty cold place, Sorry. certainly uh, in winter. So, director, I'm going to adjust the mic. <laughs> I want to touch on a couple of times, more than a couple of times, I think you mentioned the con- command and control type of person and, and strength skill set you've got there. I know you've your awareness was brought to that over time, but where have you seen that come through as strengths and your ability to utilise that in your own leadership style? I tell you where I see it come through as a strength, and it's not in myself, it's in my son. Bless him. I think I've bequeathed that to him. And he emerged very early, well, not very early, but sort of in his last couple of years at school as a school leader. And uh, he was very involved in the school production. He knew what had to be done. He just grabbed those kids and showed them what needed to be done. Because often there's another thing about leadership is um, is technical expertise. You know, if you want to be the boss, you've got to know the job as well. You've got to know what needs to be done. And so you will often take that because you have an expertise. And often, if you're not rude, if you're if you've got a style of doing that, you can deliver very well, and I know he's done that. And and I guess some people would say I don't know anything, but um, I sort of know a little bit about a few things. And if you can demonstrate that expertise, it's probably not so much of a command and control. But I sometimes look. I'm an impatient person, and I think probably I would say that. Look, don't argue with me. We don't need to debate this. I know it's right. Just get on with it and do it. Now, all the corporate training tells you with all the HR people, no, take them along with them and pat them on the head and encourage them. But gee, sometimes something just needs to be done. Particularly, you're working in the media. I, you know, I ran desks in newsrooms. You've got to meet the deadline. It's got to be done. Don't debate with me. Get the copy done. It's got to be done. So I suppose I worked in environments as well where you needed to get things done that way. So I'm a product probably of conflicting environments as well which just had different requirements, that's all. Yeah, it was it was really interesting to me because I know there was a podcast maybe a couple of years ago you did around some career counselling stuff and, and talking you about your journey. That? I did find that. I did, I, You're I told, the only guy who's watched that, I think. I told you that people have a digital <laughs> footprint, even if they don't realise it. But 
you, you talked there, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but around how you've been a bit of a like get in and sort stuff out in organisations. And I know you've done that with a few, and, and Pacific Lake Housing, which is a local great organisation on the coast. But again, without putting words and ideas into your into your mouth and your head, but that's where I see a strength of leadership for someone like you. That there was an organisation talk Pacific Link Housing, not now, but in the past, struggling. You've come into an organisation, you chaired that, took over the chairmanship of the board, and you got stuff done. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, look, it's only in later years, and when I did that podcast, that I'd sort of thought about it, because it was many years sort of after, when I looked at my career and looked at the jobs that I had taken, and I then started to realise that there was a pattern emerging. And uh, you also uh, discover these things when you have a bit of counselling yourself. (laughs) So that there was a pattern emerging that I'd gone to, uh, I suppose the first one was a newsroom in Canberra that I went to establish a new service. So that involved setting up a whole lot of systems processes and a new news service. So that was the start. I then went to the press gallery to, again, build an organisation. It had a few clients, but it was a news organisation again, and we had to get more clients. So as well as writing the news, I was selling as well, effectively. I didn't realise that until later, that that's what I was doing. I was selling the service. I then went to a normal job. That was when I first went to an industry association, but it was expanding. And so it was doing some new things. But then I, uh, I went to the UK to rebuild a corporate affairs organisation. So, yeah, I suppose I have gone and, and built things. So, and that's probably what I'm good at rather than then seeing something to continue on, just bubble along and maintain the status quo. I suppose I like a challenge. Let's get the elephant in the room out the way. You were a global spokesman for a tobacco company. Must have been pretty challenging. How important is it as a a leader and a spokesman and the head spokesman globally to get messaging right? Oh, in that organisation, you had to get it right. I mean, you couldn't get it wrong. But that was, uh, I make no apologies for having worked in the tobacco industry. I worked for British American Tobacco. It was an absolutely fantastic company to work for. The training that I got, the welfare of their employees, and you probably won't believe me, but the ethics of the people that I worked for. Sure, back in the 50s, hindsight's a wonderful thing. So back in the 50s, when we first started to hear about the risks of smoking tobacco, it's a bit like the global pandemic. Nobody knew how to react. You got a business which was very wealthy and made a lot of money, run by a lot of salesmen, They're not going to react the way we do today. And that's one of the things that annoys me about the whole argument, about a lot of things today now, where we use today's contemporary standards to to criticise the behaviour of people 50, 60, 70 years ago. So I find that a bit annoying on a whole raft of things, not just the tobacco industry. But going back to my role in it, so it was a wonderful organisation to work for. That was also part of my opening of my mind I did an amazing amount of research when I was first recruited to the Industry Association. I first went to work for the Tobacco Institute and they approached me. I, they didn't do the research all that well. I was a bit of an anti-smoker, you know. I joined the pack. It's another thing I've learned about the pack in the press gallery. I was part of the pack. The pack was anti-smoking. So was I. 
And then suddenly somebody, a headhunter, comes and says, you want to come and work for the tobacco industry? And I said, oh, wait a minute. Why don't I do some serious research about this? And I looked at what they were arguing, and uh, I thought, oh, they've got a case. And so, yeah, why not? And that was the beginning of a long, a, a very enjoyable and successful 15 years that I had in the tobacco industry. So, And it took me to the UK. It took me to the, to the cutting edge. But yeah, I was the chief global spokesman. But again, in a fantastic organisation, I talked earlier about training. And so uh, I was very well trained. And uh, I think I'm reasonably smart. I was, but it's a bit like, I used to always equate it to playing tennis. I practised all the time and I got good at it. And uh, you were very well briefed. So you knew the arguments, you knew what you were doing. Uh, but that's also part of in later years when I'd finished all of that and I'd decided to semi-retire to the Central Coast. I've done some media training and things. I was the slick, trained corporate spokesman. And that worked in that era. See, I don't think that works as well anymore because the world is far more aware of these things. Back then, you didn't have slick corporate spokesmen, apart from the guys in the tobacco industry. And so that was well accepted. You were invited onto everything. You were on television a lot. I had a high television profile at one stage, particularly in Australia in the early days. So today, if I was training corporations, I would say, no, we will, we will wheel out the real people who are doing that. So if you've got a chemical spill somewhere in the Northern Territory, wheel out the guy who runs that business in the Northern Territory. You would train him and prepare him, but you also wouldn't give him a set of slick lines. People are awake up to the slick lines. You would let him talk in his own language and tell the truth. You will always get found out if you're not telling the truth. And every time I spoke for the tobacco industry, I can tell you I was telling the truth. I never told a lie. We were told, we were had it beaten into us, you do not lie, do not tell untruths. So, yeah, it was pretty good. But I had no difficulty. I make no apologies. Uh, I'm very proud of the work I did. And it helped make me the person I am today. Can you think back... I guess over those 10 years and, and being a global spokesman for a, a tobacco company, what was your greatest challenge in a role like that? Probably remembering the lines. No. <laughs> <laughs> the slick lines. <laughs> the greatest challenge was to be heard. Everybody had a definite point of view, particularly when you were on international media. The BBC was the worst. Those guys were, um, they were really slick, but they're like most interviewers now in the media. And this is, again, when I would train anybody, you ask anybody, why do you want to go on? What are you going to get out of it by going what, what on? What's in it for you? Because you go onto those programs these days and you're fodder. I mean, we were pretty good though. We had techniques to get our voice heard and to interrupt them back. But the BBC, I found the BBC was the worst. And so you learn how to interrupt them back. So being heard, that was probably the greatest challenge. I mean, the other thing was some of your friends turned away, you know, I lost some friends because I went to work in the tobacco industry. They were critical of me. How could you do that? But so they're not great friends. So there were a few personal things like that. But also too, in social settings, I didn't talk a lot about what I did, only because everyone has an opinion about smoking. And I did not want to go out all the time and talk about my job. 
And it's a bit like working in the media as well. Oh, what do you do? Oh, I read the news on television. Oh, really? I've had jobs where people only want to talk about your job and I want to talk about other stuff. <laughs> Believe it or not, I don't like to talk about myself. I know you, you find sure? that difficult to believe. Are you sure? I know, I know. <laughs> this is not really me. Again, your your background is unbelievably varied. I'm not sure there's that many things you haven't done or touched at some point in time. The media side of things, and you know, media is media, and today we hear good, bad, ugly around the media. Well, I'd love to hear your own opinion on, I guess, the state of journalism and media coverage today versus, can I say, back in your day. Oh, yeah, back in my day. Well, back in my day, back in my day, (laughs) because I remember once I had an editor almost ripped me another one because I wrote a line in the opening of a story. And keep in mind, I'm writing for radio, which sounded like an opinion. So I think I'd written something like, things are looking pretty serious today in state parliament. He said, we don't care whether you think whether it's serious or not. You're just going to report what's going on in state parliament today. So you do not write like that. We don't want to hear your opinion. Today, it's 180 degrees different. And you watch everywhere. Even the ABC writes like that. So it's not news anymore, really. It's views. And we're hearing it's more important that you see what I think about the news today. And they're all doing it. Even these young reporters who are doing a road accident. It looks like it's pretty serious here. We can see that. You've got pictures. So just tell us the facts and tell us what happened. And there's all sorts of little things. And it's happening everywhere, even in the, in the proper newspapers. This, the, the sub-editing is, isn't good. And for radio, it's different to newspapers, but you had to be able to, a sentence shouldn't run any longer than three lines, otherwise it's too complex. And more and more I find written journalism is becoming more and more complex. I find myself having to go back and reread paragraphs in the paper to try and grasp what it is they're trying to say. And then there's all sorts of other things. And my wife and I, I nearly drove off the road this week because <laughs> the command of the English language ain't great about amongst these young people who are coming out. It sounds like I'm an old bloke complaining about young people. I love young people. You're right. I, you're, I'm starting to think you're um, almost the Kel Richards of the Culture of Things <laughs> show. Is that right? <laughs> almost, I can tell you. Uh, but we, we, we can almost, have a regular slot for you. I almost drove off the road the other day because a young woman was reporting that somebody had been taken to hospital because they'd been shot in the Illawarra. Well, there's nothing more painful than being shot in the Illawarra. I tell you, my Illawarra is very sacred to me. Um, (laughs) You know, they just cannot write the English language. They do not know where to put the word alleged in news stories. Clearly, there's an editor saying to them, you can't say that this bloke did it. You know, it's only alleged that he did it, but he he was driving the alleged car. No, he, it was alleged he was driving... So there is a command of the English language that I think is faltering. So that's point one. Oh, yeah, I've got it all. And point two, we're hearing too much opinion in the news. And the third thing is, I think, and and this is the fault of the journalism schools, that people are turning to the news and being part of the media probably for different reasons. For example, I heard a young woman on Talkback Radio bemoaning the fact that uh, it was a segment about the media and she was saying that, oh, there weren't enough jobs. She'd just graduated as a journalist and she couldn't find a job and wasn't this terrible because how was I going to be able to campaign on the issues I believe in? That's what's happened to the media. It's certainly a very, very interesting landscape, isn't it? It is. 
Thanks for sharing that opinion, mate. I'd like to go back to governance and we, we started to touch on Pacific Link Housing. I'd like you to explain or tell us a little bit more about your involvement as a chair and the relationship of the chair with the CEO, who I know you were instrumental yeah, we were in close, appointing yeah. and, yep. and turning around. Tell, tell us a bit more about that. Well, the chair and the CEO in any organisation have got to be close and they've got to, they've sort of got to have a common understanding and probably respect for each other. And that was how, that's how we made it work. Unless you've got a good CEO, they can make or break you as well. You know, you've got to pay tribute to the CEOs that they do. The board, as you know, in a, in a proper governance structure sets the policies and the CEO and needs to get that out of the team. And we had a strong understanding of that was the roles. You've got to understand the definition and the line in your roles. And that's the way it worked. And that's what made it work, I think. He knew what had to be done. I knew what had to be done. And uh, high ethical standards as well. That's one of the other things that you've got to understand that people have got to do things according to the rules and within the ethical and moral standards of doing things. And uh, we both understood that. And, uh, and I think that's why it worked. And he was pretty smart. You've got to be pretty smart as well. You can be well-meaning, you can be wanting to save everybody, but if you aren't smart enough, then things will stumble. And I was lucky he was pretty smart. Made me look good. And how's that organisation progressing now? Like, What was your, going back to that word, legacy, and the turning around of the organisation, what was your legacy? Yeah, it was good the, governance structures. Now? A complete change of culture. And good governance structures. I think that's that's probably what I left behind was a strong. When I hear culture, my ears prick up. So, tell us a a little bit about that journey that you worked with the CEO around culture change. For example, um, as you know, the social the community housing market is people need social housing, and that's what we we housed people who uh, needed social housing. And um, when I first went there, there were members of staff living in houses, so things like that were happening. So we needed to eradicate all of those sorts of practices. They were happening for the best of reasons, but you simply, you've got to pass the pub test as well, but you have to also have to pass the regulatory test. It is a highly regulated environment. And most organisations like that, all of business is highly regulated now. And so you have to work within the rules. One of the great things that a lot of people don't understand the conflicts of interest and how to manage them. And so, you know, we got on top of all of those things. And again, it's a lot of it is just proper administration, having a register of your conflicts, having a register of all sorts of things, having good administrative procedures. A lot of um, being successful is not about inventing the light globe. It's administration. It's doing what you're supposed to be doing. It's paying your bills. It's sending out your invoices. It's just, I call it mundane management. And that's what it is. That's what makes an organisation successful. Yes, you need to have goals and objectives and things to grow and to take your organisation forward. But 99% of what you're doing is mundane management. Just do what you're supposed to be doing. And that's what we got happening there, that people people were doing their jobs. And you introduced things, again, taking me back to my corporate life, the training that I got in my corporate life. And because I was a senior head office manager, I used to get drafted into 
cross-functional teams as well. And so I became a hey job evaluator. So I knew how to evaluate jobs and job evaluation processes and things. So I was able to bring those things to the organisation as well. We had a job appraisal. We had an appraisal system. And people get frightened of appraisal systems and things. The way I was introduced to it and trained into it, you learnt to love it because you set your goals and they were in stone between you and your boss. If you could exceed those and you worked hard, guess what? You got a bonus. Now, you can do that in corporate life. You can't do that in the not-for-profit sector, although you could. Why not? So... Yeah, so my legacy is mundane management, I think. <laughs> I love that term, mundane management. Is it a term you used earlier about the reporting and media and views, not news? <laughs> so that I really like that as well. You've used this term ethical standards a little bit. As a leader, what are your ethical standards? What make you who you are as a leader? I think I was very lucky that I was brought up, brought up by women, believe it or not who had very high values and ethical standards. You wouldn't steal a glass of water amongst the people that I was brought up with, and it was drummed into you all the time. So I come from the country, uh, from typical country folk, although they were townspeople, they weren't farmers. So they were pretty ordinary working class people. There was there was no wealth where I was. This is a shout-out to Coonabarabran, this isn't it? shout-out to Coonabarabran, yeah. And... Um, So my grandmother particularly was involved in the community. She was secretary of the hospital ward. Now, she wasn't a highly educated woman, but she was smart and committed. So she was secretary of the hospital board. She was secretary of the Country Women's Association. So there were people around me who behaved in a high ethical fashion. And it's one of the things, and I've learned this from my children, they've told me, that it's not about what you say to them. They're watching what you do. And so they're watching how you behave. And if you behave like that, there's a good chance that they will behave like that. And so I saw all the people around me paying their bills, going to work on time, not just sidling up. You've got to get there. And, you know, if you were running late, it was a big deal. So you witnessed all of these things. So I think, I think that's where your moral compass gets set. And then you continue to behave that way. I know when I was a young journalist and I was on the road in Sydney, I'd see things that other guys were doing. And I was thinking, that's not right. And I wouldn't do some things that that I was encouraged to do, you know, just to get stories and things. I thought, that isn't right. That's not honest. And so I suppose I thank my my forebears for my ethical standards. And hopefully my kids have seen that as well. Well, talking about your kids, you've got five, so you've been busy over your life. I've only met one of your kids, and that's Robert, who you've referred to in the Sydney. He's also a past guest of the culture of things. He was too. Robert was one of the school captains of a very, very exclusive private school on the Central Coast, Central Coast Grammar. He did a fantastic job last year. He's now gone into the Air Force. How have you contributed to this fine, young, upstanding man? Uh, I've badgered him. I don't know. You probably should ask him that. Hopefully, I have asked him that, oh, and it's okay. on a previous episode. <laughs> Hopefully he saw what I was doing, 
would be one thing. Look, I did badger him a lot. I know I talked a lot about things and encouraged him to consider things. He'll probably tell you differently. But uh, I wanted him to have options to consider. So you sometimes do your homework, do the kids' homework for them, not doing their homework. I tell you, it was one thing about Did you get him. good marks? Well, no, he wouldn't let me. <laughs> there, were, there were some things that he'd be doing, and he'd be struggling with a history assignment. I'd say, mate, I spent my, year, my, I spent my career writing. You want me to give you a hand? No. He would never allow me. He wanted it to be his work. So, you know, I'm pretty impressed with that, that he wanted it to be his work. But you did do things so that you could bring to them information so that they could consider something else. Because sometimes when you're that young, you don't, you don't have the wisdom to go wider and see what else is out there. And so, therefore, you just put things in front of them. And what about you think about this? And and in fact, he's in the Air Force today because he was originally thinking about the Army. And uh, I presented some new information to him. Why don't you think about this? And he thought, oh, yeah, that's that more suits me. Because I'd seen that and I thought, well, that suits him. You know, you get to know your kids reasonably well. And uh, so... I know what would better suit him. Oh, he could be, do most things. I mean, he's a pretty good guy. I'm pretty. All my kids are good, actually. All my kids are good. I know you're very, very proud of your five yeah. children. Again, I'm just focusing on Robert because I know Robert pretty well. Bringing that word legacy back and yourself and your beautiful wife, Sam, what are you most proud of with Robert's journey and that legacy you've given Robert as a fine young man? He's embarked on a career, which I think uh, he can be proud of doing it, but I'm very proud of him, of, of service. One of the things, and I suppose this must have rubbed off on him a little bit, so I'd spent most of my career until I came back to the Central Coast. I lived here in the 70s and I came back in 2003. And one of the things I was determined to do, or I decided to do, was that, well, I'd had all this great corporate training, you know, what can I do? Well, I'll give something to my community. And so that was why I joined Rotary. So he had witnessed the service and the attitude of service to the community, and there are different ways about service. And we talk about these things. Uh, They're pretty boring for a teenager probably, but hopefully a few things rub off. And so he could see that service is a reputable thing to do, and it's an honourable thing to do. And you can give service to your country, but also have a fantastic career. I mean, we're not supposed to be self-flagellating and things in our service. I mean, you can enjoy it, you know. And in fact, one of the great things about service is you enjoy, you know, I get something out of it as well when you can see that you've done something good. There's nothing wrong with enjoying what you're doing and helping people. Why is service that for you, a real solid foundation for leaders? I suppose it's in your attitude and it's part of your character. Leaders need to have character, I think. They need to be strong characters. So, And character, don't ask me to define character, but they, they are people who are honest, upstanding, reliable, things like that can be relied upon. And leaders need to be relied upon because they more often than not, need to solve crises, whether they be business or personal or all sorts of things. You know, your staff have crises. You need to, to be able to step up and, and help them as well. But, you know, you have business crises and, and you need to make tough decisions as a leader. That defines leaders. Can you make a tough decision? 
You sometimes need to let people go. You sometimes need to let hundreds of people go. I've never been in that position of letting hundreds of people go, but boy, that must be tough. And that requires a lot of strength of character, I would have thought. So yeah, leaders uh, need to be those sorts of people, I think. Absolutely. Mate, you're almost out of the hot seat, I think. I, I want to finish with, I guess, one final question, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. But in your journey, there's there's a lot of things you've done. There's a number of things that you've done that we just don't have time to talk about today. You know, you've been involved in government ministries, and you've referred to press galleries and all sorts of stuff. It's a pretty varied career, I have to say. What's the one thing for you that had the greatest impact on your leadership journey? I think um, the guy who took me to the UK to sort out the corporate affairs or to to help a rejuvenation, I didn't sort it out, but, but I was the new blood that needed to come in. And that was probably one of the biggest impacts that he had the confidence in me to do that. And I learnt huge amounts from this guy. If you were to meet him, you would have thought he and I were chalk and cheese, and we were. But I had enormous respect for him. He was wise. He counselled me. I don't think he realised how much he was educating me because I was watching him. And I learnt, uh, I learnt a I learned a huge amount about business because I was more of a journo type and a communicator and, you know, we did all the fluffy, lovely things. So I learned a huge amount about business from him. So that that had a huge impact of, of making me more complete, I think, to be able to then become a chairman of a company, although it was a not-for-profit, not to recognise how it needed to make money to survive and to know some of the ways that you could do that. Yeah, I guess if I could sum that up in a couple of words, what I'm taking away from that is that there was a person that actually believed in you, believed in your ability and gave you the confidence to grow and develop and do stuff. Mm, I think so, yeah. That's pretty powerful in leaders, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah, mm. yeah. And I don't think a huge number of – but clearly the people who knew him well in the company – knew that about him because he was promoted to that role and he occupied that role. But I suspect a lot of people around him didn't, but uh, I did. Oh, he was great. He was great. Mate, it's been absolutely fascinating. Like I said earlier, I've, I've known you for two and a half years or so. You and I spent a bit of time together on some election campaigns and putting signs out and running around the Central Coast and doing all sorts of stuff. It's a pleasure having you as part of my network. I think we get on pretty well. There may be only five or 10 years in age difference. I'm like, you're only 50. Yes. Yeah. Look at this. <laughs> <laughs> we won't have to touch up anything. <laughs> But mate, I certainly appreciate your friendship. I appreciate your guidance. Um, I love having you as part of my own network and how we catch up at Toastmasters and outside of that, mate. Thanks for coming on our show today and sharing your wisdom, you wise old man, you. It's been fun. Thanks for being a guest on the Culture Things podcast, buddy. David is a passionate community man. Since retiring, he's doubled down on it. Not only is he heavily involved in Rotary and all their associated activities, he volunteers his time to several other community groups on the Central Coast. He's also heavily involved in the political landscape and has recently been appointed to the role of Deputy Chair of Regional Development Australia, Central Coast. David played a key part in the Trin Foundation's work in bringing speech therapy to Vietnam. His emotional connection to that goal and doing good things was clear to see during the interview. 
David's a leader who is proud to serve. These were my three key takeaways from my conversation with David. My first key takeaway, good leaders build for after they're gone. They're proactive with succession planning. Rotary encourages this very well. A leader is always coaching and developing their team, but it helps to identify someone in the team who can and wants to succeed the leader. Do this well and success will continue. My second key takeaway, leaders seek feedback. If you do, you will get to know yourself better. To seek feedback, you must have a mindset of improvement. This mindset will result in a greater level of self-awareness and ultimately will improve your performance. Seeking feedback is the key. My third key takeaway, leaders build confidence in others. How do they do it? They believe in you. All it takes is one person to believe in you and this will give you confidence. Think about it. Whenever you achieve something you were proud of, there would have been at least one person who gave you the confidence to do it. They believed in you and that gave you the confidence to achieve it. So in summary, my three key takeaways were good leaders build for after they're gone. Leaders seek feedback and leaders build confidence in others. If you want to talk culture, leadership or teamwork or have any questions or feedback about the episode, you can leave me a comment on the socials or you can leave me a voice message at thecultureofthings.com. Thanks for joining me and remember, the best outcome is on the other side of a genuine conversation. Thank you for listening to the Culture of Things podcast with Brendan Rogers. Please visit brendanrogers.com.au to access the show notes. If you love the Culture of Things podcast, please subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts. And remember, a healthy culture is your competitive advantage.